0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Hussein Mossin. And today, I'll be talking about technology and word civilization, a thousand-year history co-authored by Arnold Pacey and Francesca Bray. Arnold Pacey is formerly a lecturer lecturer at the Open University in London. Dr. Francesca Bray is a professor of the history of technology at the University of Edinburgh. Both of the authors are winners of the Leonardo da Vinci medal in the history of technology. I'll be talking today with Professor Bray and uh, Mr. Pacey, unfortunately, couldn't be with us. Uh, Francesca, thank you for being with us.
0: Well, thank you very much for inviting us to this wonderful opportunity.
1: Well, it's a true pleasure. And I have to say, this is one of the richer books I had the chance to uh, read recently. It takes us through 1,000 years across geography and a fascinating history of technology. But before we start, talking about the book, Uh, first, how did the idea of the book itself in 1990 emerge, and why did you both work on an expanded version 30 years later?
0: Okay, well, I will start. I should say that I had a long telephone conversation with Arnold about this, and I hope I am relaying what he wanted me to say about the history of the first volume. and uh, I'll come on after that to our collaboration. So let me start by introducing one of the more unique characters in the history of technology. Um, Somebody who has really been outside the conventional academy all his life. And that is a consequence of his very deeply held values. And these very deeply held values are very apparent and beautifully expressed in technology and world civilization. So Arnold began by studying physics, which he then taught at the Manchester College of Science and Technology. And there he met Donald Cardwell, who was, Arnold says, quite a character, and a historian of science and technology. And Donald Cardwell invited Arnold to join his new history of science and technology program. And in fact, uh, Donald Cardwell and Arnold wrote together a rather conventional history of technology piece on physics, which won the Usher Prize of the Society for the History of Technology, I believe, sometime in the 1980s. However, even at that point, Arnold was very much interested in a more social and philosophical approach than was conventional in history of science and technology at the time. And he wrote two books, one called The Maze of Ingenuity and another called The Culture of Technology. Um, But he wasn't really satisfied with being an academic in an ordinary university, although he got great pleasure from teaching the physics students and discussing things with them, and particularly the international students. But he was the child of missionary parents, and his mother had always encouraged him and his sister to seek a career with humanitarian application, to quote Arnold. So he saw an opportunity then in the 1970s, Which was beyond the academy in what was then called intermediate technology, which was a political as well as a technical movement. And he saw the intermediate technology movement as a possibility for himself to develop new insights into technology that weren't designed just to make the rich richer. So he joined Oxfam and worked with uh, active scientists, field scientists in hydraulics and other disciplines on issues to do with water in semi-arid environments, including what apparently are rather dull things if you're not interested, like boreholes. Oh, please. And <laughs> Come on, I guess you're from South Asia, so I shouldn't say you're not interested in boreholes and I've worked all around the world, so I'm interested in boreholes, but a lot of people don't
1: know what they are. Oh, please tell us about them.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay, well, you stick stick a pipe in the ground and you pump and water comes out (laughs) Um, to make it simple. Um, Okay, so uh, one of, I think, Arnold's favorite work, and he kindly gave me a copy, is called Hand Pump Maintenance. And he regards this as a work which is absolutely fundamental for all his subsequent endeavors. And it sounds very quaint to say that, but remember, this was a time when Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance had just hit the uh, top of the charts. So um, how did he come to technology and world civilization? Well, uh, his books had been published in Britain. Uh, but were taken up in the United States by MIT Press, and the editor there was Larry Cohen. And when the MIT Press took on a US edition of the Culture of Technology, Larry Cohen very much praised and encouraged Arnold and uh, got him an invitation to the States to do a lecture tour, but he also said, now you're just the person to write a general history of technology, which will shake people up a bit. And Arnold took on the idea. And as he said, he didn't think that uh, Larry Cohen exactly expected a 1000 years of history, but that was what he got. So, in technology and world civilization, Arnold is clearly very much influenced by his practical research on the one hand, and also by considerations of what today we'd call epistemic justice. So he was absolutely insistent that this should reflect the importance of the non-European, non-Western world in forming technological cultures across the centuries. And it should be against the grand Eurocentric narratives. Though I should point out that none of these terms was current at the time. So this was really pioneering. And two very a very important inspiration to Arnold was Joseph Needham's Science and Civilization in China. And I subsequently learned especially the volume on agriculture, which happened to be the volume that I wrote. <laughs> so um, Later on, this formed an important basis for our collaboration. So um, one of the features, the iconoclastic features of technology and world civilization in its first edition was that it critically unpacked a lot of the concepts that were absolutely fundamental to much general history of technology at the time, which were drawn, drawing on economics So, uh, concerned with patents and innovation and efficiency in terms of input, output of resources and so on, and a little bit obsessed with the Industrial Revolution and its transformation of human human history. So, uh, Arnold wanted to critically unpack those to give them deep histories and to show the world participation in making these histories. Um, But another aspect that was already attracting his attention was sustainability, and issues of the origins and outcomes of resource constraints. And also technological cultures of different kinds in different contexts. So in many ways, this first edition foreshadowed many current concerns like entangled histories, South-South histories, provincializing Europe, epistemic justice, and so on. Um, And then because the book had been widely used as a teaching text and seems to have done very well, though Arnold can't tell me how well, because he gifted all his royalties to a fund for supporting junior MIT press authors. Um, When he was asked to do a second edition, Arnold hesitated because he's had problems with his eyesight and also he had been working much less recently in history of technology. So um, he suggested to me that I might collaborate with him on the second edition and I jumped at this opportunity. Um, so for me, the foreshadowed concerns of entangled histories, decentering Europe, and so on, were extremely attractive, as well as the long durée, the long term history, which is a big passion of mine. Um, but for Arnold, it was the concern with sustainability and crisis, and particularly um, climate crisis that he viewed as an opportunity uh, you know he viewed this new edition as an opportunity to try and develop that in particular so he was invited by MIT press to add a final chapter and he considerably changed the last chapter of the first edition now chapter 11 and the new and wrote a new chapter 12 which are particularly concerned with facing the issues of how to survive in the current era um, and how we need to rethink what technology is and what a technological revolution might be, how we need to challenge the technological normal in order, as, as human societies, not just even as technological enterprises, if we're going to have any hope of addressing the future So I think the interesting thing is that far more than me, Arnold is an optimist, and he thinks that human ingenuity plus human ethics applied to technical systems can contribute to ameliorating the situation, though he sees it as extremely urgent as anyone who looks at chapter 12 will see. Um, But one thing to bear in mind is that he is definitely not advocating anything like the magic bullet approach which characterizes so much of the discourse at the moment by technocrats about how we can save the world. So that's how Arnold came to the first and the second edition. And as I say, I came to it as a historian of technology, mostly in East Asia, uh, particular interest in agriculture, in gender, and in cultures of knowledge and practice, and um, having worked quite a lot recently on thinking about where narratives about history of technology come from and how more helpful narratives can be written. So for me, this was a golden opportunity. That said, it's Arnold's book, And so I, you know, I, I worked on certain aspects of it. I added quite a lot from, for example, the recent scholarship on technology in African history, which has grown immensely over the past few years. Um, And of course, from East Asian history of technology, which has also been an expanding and very exciting field. But I didn't, interfere with any of Arnold's arguments.
1: Well, that's quite fascinating, and I'm glad you both got to work on the book. We'll touch on several of the themes you mentioned, but one theme in particular that's very central to the book is the notion of technological dialogue. So if you can tell us briefly what what's technological dialogue in the book.
0: Well, um, most people will be very familiar with the term technology transfer, which is often viewed in development theory, modernist history, and so on, as um, a catalyst for social development and economic development, and which basically uh, assumes top-down, directions of change and despite all the efforts of historians of technology and STS scholars and so on to challenge this notion of technology transfer it still remains very strong and even in global history with all its concerns to entangle to emphasize the importance of Different contributions to making the modern world. Um, very often, when it comes to writing even critical histories of technology, uh, the directionality still remains a concern. Uh, sorry, remains dominant. That uh, you know, um, even if it's work by um, by um, Hedrick or Michael Adas tentacles of progress or dominance by design Uh, you know the assumption is that the design takes place in the center and affects the periphery and the periphery might adapt or adopt or adapt but uh, basically the center is is still by implication the place where it all happens so the dialogue the technological dialogue which um, comes through right through the book. I think um, Arnold conceives of it as something much more active on both sides. So he is really interested in, uh, for example, my favorite case. There, I think, is the the um, the Indian shipping yards of the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, um, where you you really get an active interaction between European shipbuilding companies or navies and designers, engineers, and their their counterparts in India. And the influence of India on Britain is foregrounded given its true worth. And you bring in all kinds of new actors in that case. Um, rather than saying, you know, simply Britain de-industrialized India, you actually see who was involved in this process and why, given these amazing people who were actually on the scene, why it was that they couldn't actually set up as rivals to British companies. But at the same time, you see how the products of their shipyards or the products of their railway designs or whatever it might have been, um, how these actually infuse and are integrated into what then becomes something which is shown as being a product of Western civilization.
1: Well, the book certainly challenges this reductionist and hegemonic Eurocentric narrative of the history of technology again and again, We will have the time maybe to mention a few out of so many examples. You've already mentioned uh, India, where we'll later talk about even a third industrial revolution that originated in India, uh, or at least uh, its first current started uh, based on some uh, reactions that took place in India as well. Uh, There's also examples, many examples from China. We're talking also about what's known now as Iraq, Iran, and Syria, and uh, so on. Um, and the first chapter, uh, which deals with the four centuries, with the eighth to the uh, 11th century uh, inclusive, there's an interesting point that's brought up in the book where you, talk, you both talk about how climate and resources in this period shape the arenas of innovation in different geographies. Uh, for example, in Iraq, uh, water was the main resource and there was much innovation related to irrigation, particularly to navigate a dry cr- climate bar fertile soils. While the case was different in the Hebei uh, province where woodlands were the main resource and they were leveraged accordingly. So if you could tell us, about those two examples and how, in general, nature, the climate and societies back then managed all of these factors and built on them to innovate?
0: Well, without, you know, I I don't think we wanted, Arnold wanted to be environmentally deterministic, but um, It's certainly true that once you start on a certain path, there is an incentive to keep going there until you come up against the constraints. And clearly um, there is a very ancient history of water management in, am I allowed to call it the Middle East just for short?
1: What we refer to today as the Middle East, yeah.
0: Anyway the, the um, Tigris, Euphrates Valley mm-hmm. and, and that area. Um, and I think that uh, I, I, I think that um, one of the reasons well obviously one of the reasons why this area flourished was that it devoted the, the, the states of this area and the communities of this area devoted resources and ingenuity to Bringing water and soil together in ways that produced wealth. Um, so um, Arnold basically charts the history of this area uh, from beginnings to flourishing and expansion, and then coming up against problems and constraints and what the aftermath of that is. Can you dig your way out of this hole into which you've dug yourself? Um, He hints at the social and political context. Um, You can't obviously do everything in a 100,000 word book which I'm sure to undergraduate sounds like an immense endeavor, but to historians sounds like a pamphlet. (laughs) (laughs) Those books these days are more like 500 pages than 150. Um, So anyway, um, similarly with uh, the Hebei region, um, in focusing on the importance of iron smelting and iron casting iron foundries, in the early modern, uh, the early Chinese dynasties, um, which were, it is true, centered, or dominant dynasties were centered in this area, which shows us that uh, control of metallurgy was very, very important in long-term Chinese history. Um, Timber for fuel was crucial and There's a lot of interesting new forestry history in China, which just came out in the last two or three years um, and which isn't incorporated into this chapter. So it could well be that actually this is a bit out of date. But uh, basically, I think um, it's not contested that. Timber, timber shortages quite early became a problem, and then uh, the use of charcoal for furnaces began to be supplemented. In the same region where there are huge coal uh, coal seams, it began to be supplemented by the use of coal stroke anthracite. Um, and this was an example of being able to dig your way out of the hole. So you have an example of a hole you can't dig your way out of, and the hole you can dig your way out of. Uh, and I think it was this contrast, in particular, that was interesting to to Arnold in selecting mm-hmm. these particular cases and setting them against setting them beside each other. Mm-hmm. And it's a theme that continues through the book.
1: And um, throughout the book, I mean, there are multiple definitions of what would make an industrial revolution a revolution. On one hand, there is one definition that's mentioned uh, of whether a revolution would be thought of as the spurts of economic growth arising from the introduction of new technologies. While the alternative one would be whether a revolution is defined according to the social changes and the changes in the organization of production that accompany them. Now, throughout the book, we see a bit of both, but from my perspective, there was one leaning over the other. So if you could tell us, particularly because the listeners could be from uh, multiple backgrounds, be it either in science and technology or the history thereof, uh, which of these two definitions do you think the book is leaning towards more?
0: Well, I think if you look at the later chapters, it's an argument that uh, change in technology and change in um, the economic profits derived from technology, the economic growth catalyzed by technological change, is, if you like, um, a false profit. And that, uh, put in Arnold's very gentle restrained terms, (laughs) the social consequences, which often come with a lag, are equally important and not necessarily always beneficial, to put it mildly, Um, but not to be dismissed for that reason there. They are interesting, they are not just to be condemned. um, so he's very interested in, for example, how you have a whole set of inventions in 18th century England, which, uh, which are in retrospect hailed as the roots of the, you know, the, the triggers of the Industrial Revolution and all due to British genius and hard work and imagination or Scottish. Um, (laughs) And uh, in fact, they don't become innovations in the sense of something which actually transforms a mode of production and transforms a social organisation until they have uh, meshed with a set of organisational reforms or changes that allow them really to permeate society and transform it. So This is one of the concerns throughout when talking about industrial revolutions or comparing the success in Britain with the lack of success in India, where, you know, Indian entrepreneurs were banned largely from participation. Um, But then at the same time that there's a, you're probably familiar with a a quite um, well-known recent strand in history of technology, history of environment, um, which looks at um, which looks at resources and sustainability and argues through the use of coal, the use of timber, the use of oil um, and which has sometimes been criticized for over emphasizing the causality associated with these, sources of energy. Nevertheless, Arnold's argument, I think, here would be that sources of energy are something we really need to think about, particularly when they come up against constraints, and sometimes in the early sections of the book, in the early historical eras he's discussing, the uh, constraints they come up against are constraints of supply, but in what he carefully avoids calling the Anthropocene, (laughs) they are the constraints of effect, impact, not supply. And they need to be considered as equally important. So when he's discussing in the final chapter, whether these various uh, second, third, fourth industrial revolutions, so-called should be considered industrial revolutions, um, he's saying, well, you know, the important, one important criterion really would be if we actually had changed the nature of our reliance on resources. And if we were leaving a lighter footfall, and we're not. So Arnold's argument is until we leave a lighter footfall, we cannot claim that this is a true revolution.
1: Um, That's quite fascinating. Since you already touched on one of the Occurrence that happened in India, there is uh, on, in the chapter on the industrial movements. Uh, the book talks about an entire third industrial movement that has been overlooked until recently and which took place in India. Uh, so it was centered around textile, chemical and shipbuilding industries. So I'm curious if you could tell us about this movement And I'm curious not only about why this has been overlooked, although it's a very central question, but also in general, uh, and that's a very open-ended question. uh, How do you think Cold War politics have affected the writing of history of technology, particularly because the first edition came towards the end of that, uh, that war? So we see many mentions of many overlooked patterns. Uh, in the history of technology. So on the one hand, what's the third industrial movement in India? On another, how did Cold War politics in general affected how history of technology was written?
0: Mm. Well, um, I think it's to take the second question first. I think it's very clear that uh, the Cold War had a great impact, not so much on how professional historians of technology wrote technology, but on how um, more general pundits interpreted history of technology. So for instance, um, one of the great authorities we're always supposed to to engage with um, whenever we talk about the history of water is Carl Wittgenstein and uh, sorry, Carl Wittfogel, Sorry, uh, and uh, Carl Wittfogel was a, originally a, a communist supporter who converted uh, to more liberal American values, and he was originally a historian of China, and he developed a. He developed ideas that people like Montesquieu in the 18th century had already proposed about um, oriental societies and stagnation and Marx too had taken these up. And Wittfogel wrote a book on oriental despotism and hydraulic societies. That came out in the 1950s, and that was greeted to great acclaim because it uh, it told people the kind in the West the kind of message they wanted to hear that uh, you know that anything east of the Urals was basically a despotic, unchanging, hopeless society. Um, but this is why not because they couldn't do anything, but because they had produced this civilization-based on a system that required a strong despotic state to keep it going. And ever since it came out, there have been people disputing this. Anthropologists, Edmund Leach, for example, um, historians of technology of all kinds. And and yet it still remains a message that many people want to hear. Um, Though I think now perhaps it is a little less attractive than it was during the Cold War, but, well, I'm not sure the Cold War has really ended. Um, so, uh, so yes, so it, it was um, ideas like this, which meant that when people, important, well-known historians like um, David Landis were writing, or, well, Joel Mokier is much more nuanced, but even so, um, basically you know then you have an other an oriental other that you can write against and uh, marx had likewise written about the deindustrialization of india which he condemned in the strongest terms but he didn't actually suggest that there was the wherewithal in india to have their own industries so if you talk to uh colleagues in india who work on the history of technology or on contemporary technology, you'll see that within Indian politics also, um, the distinction between craft and industry is one that is very, it's a dichotomy for them. And that arises from Gandhian, Nehruvian politics um, and a society in which you still have According to my colleagues, something like four million people who depend on the handloom industry for their living and who have government protection, as long as they are labeled craftspeople. And then you have a textile industry, which is highly mechanized and uh, um, a completely a completely different ethical and economic object, as far as analysts of Indian society are concerned. Um, So between these two trends, I think there has been an assumption, well, when historians have had gone to India, they had picked on the records that really traced a rich and detailed history of crafts or what were considered crafts, what were considered if you like, an antithesis to industrialization. Um, And I think that what Arnold is doing is a reaction against that. He wants to say, well, you know, um, actually, it wasn't just all handicraft. It was much more than that. What he doesn't do is pick up on a... Current concern among historians of technology, particularly, I think, outside in, in looking outside the West, but also increasingly in people trying to understand what the Industrial Revolution in Europe might have been, um, to show that craft and industry are not antagonistic, they are part and parcel of the same thing. So, um, I think one of the ways in which Arnold came to this was through um, the, and through the maze of ingenuity where he was particularly interested in engineers as craftsmen and engineers as or, or designers of machines as people who are craftspeople and artists. Does that go some
1: way to answer the question? It certainly does. And I was uh, going to mention another overlooked current of innovation that spent centuries as well was the one mentioned in Chapter 11 about the significance of the African experience and mm-hmm. the innovations of farmers in different parts of the African continent that were historically discarded, often for prejudices, uh, prejudiced reasons, but then later acknowledged on how different natural resources, such as the use of trees to protect the fertility of the soil and so on, uh, could be used, which which led to more interest in them uh, from a history of science and technology perspective. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the broadly speaking African experience and the technologies, innovative technologies that span centuries uh, that are discussed in this section.
0: Right. Well, um, one of them, as you rightly point out, is agroforestry, another is water use, what should I say, um, techniques of collecting and distributing water which are under the radar of modern hydraulic engineering and yet very efficacious um, those are just two of the examples in the chapter and um, in both cases it's Africa is not the only continent where you find this <coughs> excuse me so. Um, Things like agroforestry are very common practice right across the tropical belt and uh, a friend of mine, an archaeologist um, Annabel Ford, has been working on this aspect in this this type of cultivation in the Maya rainforest um, for many years, but uh, didn't know about Arnold's book and vice versa. is also very common throughout tropical Southeast Asia and I imagine South Asia also. And um, I think one of the interesting things here is, again, it's not something that is belabored in the chapter, but it's a question of how if technologies like this, which are actually not survivals unchanged from ancient times, but adaptations to, uh, you know, climatic trends, to population movements, to colonialism, to post-independence development policies, Um, but they have attracted attention again. They have become matters of concern and objects of attention. Uh, And they seem to offer, what is the word now, regenerative possibilities, which have become very attractive. And one of the things which has changed quite noticeably in the assumptions of transnational organizations like like uh, FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, or even um, the IMF, is that faced with the clear negative consequences, not that they're not positive consequences, but faced with the negative consequences of over-industrialization and overindulgence indulgence in monoculture, um, they've started to question issues of scale and issues of temporality. So they are starting, for example, to uh, <laughs> to preach the virtues of small farming. Uh, it's all the rage now. Um, they're even saying, well, shifting agriculture isn't so bad. There's a new FAO paper on that came out, I think, in 2018 or something like that. So are going completely against the orthodoxy of Decades and decades, and uh, certainly not something that many governments will want to hear because they can't stand shifting farmers because they don't stand still to be taxed. Um, But uh, anyway, uh, you know, you see this 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 sea change up there in the stratosphere of transnational organizations. Um, And you see these loopings also in ideas of what is a good system. So when Arnold was when he first wrote this and and first wrote this chapter for the nineteen ninety edition, it was it wasn't so much this is going to be something which other people will want to adopt and adapt. It'll be something that other people ought to think about seriously, but probably won't. Well, now they actually are thinking about these questions seriously and looking for example at um, agroforestry is big now in Europe, uh, as well as in the tropical regions. Um, And these alternative ways of collecting water in highly arid environments, whether it be in Palestine or in Sahelian regions are now actually attracting serious attention from scientists and development experts. So I think um, it's the tone, what should I say? Not the tone, the, the hope for the spirit in which this will be read that has changed from one edition to the other as people throughout the world have become more conscious of the challenges of thinking big is beautiful and the challenges of accepting that one scale must fit all. all problems.
1: Another, I call it constructive counter-narrative is the one mentioned in chapter four, um, when, the, when you both talk about uh, Esther Bosre, If mm-hmm. I hope I uh, pronounced it correctly, the anti-Malthusian argument, uh, which portrays the increase in population density as often a prompt for technological development to intensify agricultural production rather than lead to mass starvation. So if you could tell us more about this anti-Malthusian argument and how it might resonate today, because we still see some Malthusian legacies uh, for trade, particularly by larger organizations in the world.
0: Well, Esther Bosara, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her name right either because she's Danish and I, my Danish is not too hot. Um, she wrote two fantastic books that uh, really influenced all of us in the 1970s. And one was this book about um, development and, and growth. I have to look at the bibliography to remember the name. Um, so uh, there was the this book about... Um, conditions of agricultural growth, and there was population and technological change. And uh, both of them were really interesting because they talked, as you say, they gave an anti-Malthusian approach in which um, people didn't just have lots of babies and then starve to death. (laughs) Uh, They found new ways of doing things. And um, another big argument in Esther Bozera was that gender matters and that women make a very positive contribution, which is usually overlooked in her case in the development literature, but also generally in history of technology, for example, it's assumed that technology is something men do. So if men are doing it, it's technology, and if women are doing it, it's housework. Um, So these two were very powerful arguments for, I guess, both of us independently at that time. Um, And I think, um, again, scale here is one of the issues. And I'm not sure that the anti-Malthusian arguments are pursued throughout all the chapters of the book, but they resonate with a very important debate about East Asia, which I'm sure applies to South Asia too, but it has been much more elaborated by his economic historians of East Asia, which is the great divergence debate, um, where, uh, you know, China was doing fine up till 1800 by um, actually employing more people Um, to work on manufactures as well as agricultural production. And then a crisis set in in around 1800, which is not blamed so much on population growth as on lack of resources, reaching a natural frontier um, in territory. And also from that period on, the depredations of European colonial powers coming in and uh, making things difficult. Um, So in the China case, there is a a huge debate about, whether intensification of labor is actually something which impoverishes. And um, a seminal work here was Clifford Geertz's text on agricultural involution which came out around the same time as bitphobo in the Cold War and which again was a it, it contrasted uh, Indonesia and Japan and the success of Japan in industrializing under its own steam and building a modern nation under its own steam um, which gets connected very closely with japan's willingness to adopt western institutions uh, follow western patterns of industrialization and financing and so on so in the in the case of China um, the debate is still ongoing about what exactly you know wh- whether or not we should regard 1800 as some, some kind of tipping point, and if so, to what extent the intensified use of labor was to blame as opposed to other factors. In, um, in the Japanese case, I think it was in the, in around 1990, that Japanese scholars started talking about an alternative path, which they called um, the industrious Revolution not the industrial but the industrious revolution mm-hmm. and um, they had been noting for some time the continuities between uh, early modern Japan and industrializing you know, recognizably industrializing Japan post meiji restoration in 1868 and they various scholars elaborated arguments about what exactly was going on and whether in fact Japan's centuries of relative peace under the Tokugawa, um, its expanded population, its diversification of the economy and its small-scale intensifying labor manufacturing, um, you know, how, how they should be understood as contributing to modernization? And was it right to say, well, we just abandoned all that, we adopted Western models, and then here we are? Or should this actually be seen as part of the whole process? Um, a longer, t- if, you, if you frame it starting in 1500 and coming up to the present rather than starting in 1850, and coming up to the present, they would argue you get a very different picture and you start to understand characteristics of modern industrial Japan, which otherwise would be skated over because you, want, you expect it to look like modern industrial America. So, um, sorry, that's a long rambling reply. <laughs> but um, I, I tried to insert a few footnotes To this effect in the general text because obviously we couldn't expand it indefinitely. MIT press didn't want to and there's many other texts which discuss that but I think um, that is part of the general argument and um, obviously you know there's a very serious argument to be made that technologies that can actually gainfully employ large numbers of workers uh, in occupations that are not too, you know, that are, that are not going to kill them by uh, using them as, as uh, cogs in the industrial machine. But if you can actually produce a system of um, technological advance. Which rather than eliminating human labor, keeps human labor in place and gives it a motivation for participating, then this could be perhaps a more helpful way to advance society than replacing everybody by algorithms. And, um, you know, I don't think Arnold or I would say that there is no place for automation or there is no place for robotics or digitalization. But the overriding assumption seems to have been that the industrial revolution succeeded because it, first of all, it disciplined labor, then it categorized labor and specialized it, and then it was able to
1: eliminate labor. Hey!
0: <laughs> As we know it doesn't work that simply.
1: Well, speaking of uh, labor, and there's another process of classification that I'd like to touch on the one mentioned in chapter six about printing books and ideas about technology. Mm-hmm. So, the chapter tells us much about the history of printing, about even the invention of paper and that's more than 2000 years old in China. And then it was again in a process of technological dialogue, transferred ideas, not only transferred, but they became part of this technological dialogue in different parts of the world. There's a mention of, uh, you know, large scale uh, printing industries uh, in China, but also in Morocco and then uh, public libraries in the ninth century and whatnot. And there is one mention of uh, how printing itself helped in the process of tabulating data and, Thinking about data, it, it spurred a series of analytical frameworks that shaped our understanding of the world. You give one example later on when Francis Bacon in the early 1600s was talking about uh, machines and how people, many scientists back then, started to think in terms of modeling everything as a machine, be it the human body, be it, uh, be it uh, many other systems so to speak. So if you can tell us about some of those analytical frameworks that were um, motivated to a great extent by the idea of mass scale printing.
0: Well this is a very contentious field and um, this is where maybe if I'd been writing the chapter I might not have written quite the same as I did. Um, but basically um, what's her name, Eisenberg. Um, I can't find it. Um, there was a, a, a book by a historian called I Think Eisenberg, which came out in the 1960s, and it was about the Gutenberg Revolution. And it made huge claims for what printing made possible in terms of the dissemination of ideas, the production of debates about ideas, and also uh, the ways in which knowledge could then be classified. and it became a kind of commonplace for quite a while that uh, the renaissance, the scientific revolution, were all direct outcomes of the adoption of printing in Europe and how it changed everything. Um, It was also argued that movable type went along with it. Um, The Chinese method of printing using block prints was epistemologically different, and didn't produce the same kinds of epistemological or intellectual results. Um, And it was also argued that in Islamic countries, printing was not favored because of the virtues of hand copying. Um, And that too was a, a break on various kinds of scientific and intellectual advance. So, uh, again, I think, you know, this is there's obviously, value to parts of this argument. Uh, But once again, we might remember that it comes from a history where, in the later 19th century, missionaries, Protestant missionaries, went through the world, um, translating the Bible and usually introducing a printing press into their little plot of territory in order to produce Bibles for people to read in whatever language it might be they spoke. So um, I think that this in a sense fetishized the printing press and what it generated intellectually. Um, if you look more closely, often at, you know, at what printing was used to do, um, well, from a modern, you know, from a twenty-first perspective, twenty-first century perspective, it could be that printing the Bible isn't really regarded as a great, um, <laughs> you know, great intellectual training. Uh, but it is positive that in the context of 16th, 15th, 16th century Europe, this encouraged people to argue ferociously with each other about ideas, and that set the whole ball rolling. Um, when you think about the things which we take for granted now as part of the printing press, though I must say in the modern era of printing, they seem to be remarkably difficult actually to get onto the page, uh, things like tables and indexes and so on. Um, you know, these have very mixed histories, and uh, you can find different ways of approaching these problems around the world with and without printing. Um, however, if we if we look, for example, at um, the case of China, since I'm a China historian, and the time when printing really took off in the 10th century, shall we say, um, in that particular case, it was encouraged, it was developed by the church, um, by the Buddhists and the Taoists who wanted to produce complete series of their sacred texts and were patronized by monarchs to do so. And these were critical editions. It wasn't just, you know, copying in itself will be a virtue, It was. We need a critical edition with notes and cross-references and so on. The Confucians got in on the act a bit later. Uh, the Chinese state um, saw a way of disseminating technical texts as well as texts in ethics and politics and you know, not, not obviously uh, radical politics, but uh, what you need to do to produce a harmonious state. But they, they patronized the publishing and dissemination of texts in mathematics, texts in agricultural technology, texts on medicine, just for starters, and forms. <laughs> so the civil service was delighted, you know, you could print thousands of forms and fill them in, in different ways. And you could produce records that could be consulted in different ways. And um, at the same time, was there a scientific revolution? Uh, People have different answers to that as to what the intellectual impact was. And there's a lot coming out on it at the moment, not just in the case of China, but in cases of other civilizations, sorry, I mustn't use the word civilization. I have a friend in Paris who's very, very adamant I mustn't use the word civilization. Um, And we're finding all kinds of interesting effects of a printing revolution, which are very distinctive, and not necessarily the same as the printing revolution that Eisenberg was talking about. Uh, But they also remind us that what Eisenberg was talking about was one aspect of what happened with the advent of printing to Europe, and it was not necessarily always the most important aspect for the people concerned. And then talking of mathematics, for example, the friend who says I mustn't use the word civilization because it's it, homogenizing where I shouldn't homogenize, is a historian of mathematics, Karine Shemla, and she has been working with her colleagues on the media of mathematical expression in different societies over time, and their uh, their recent research project has actually been arguing that a great deal of mathematics was not written, including probably classical Greek mathematics, but certainly mathematics in Mesopotamia, mathematics in China and India. There were things like counting rods or um, all kinds of other material supports that were used in order to not simply make calculations, but to develop ideas, concepts, ways of addressing a problem, um, which you simply cannot trace from the written record even less a printed record. So um, there's certainly no doubt that printing has a huge impact, but I think we need to think very carefully about all the other things that coexisted with printing and about the things that printing didn't do as well as what it did do.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Before I move to the last question to wrap up the interview, we've held you up for a significant amount of time. I I'd, uh, I'd usually like to end uh, an interview with a question about a contemporary issue that relates to the book. And I found it hard for that book because it's a history of technology, and there are numerous questions that I could ask about current technologies. But towards the end, in chapter 12, uh, Which focuses on semiconductors, electronics, and going more into our 21st century. There is a very interesting, I'd call it a call, or maybe observation about the environmental limits that we're currently facing and that should be accounted for. And there's a uh, there's a a citation, in a word, um, in in a sense. Um, of how we should commit to a pathway of ongoing management of humanity's relationship with the rest of the Earth system. So it seems like we should, not should, but like there's a suggestion that we are supposed to be considering a new way of approaching not only technology or innovation, but also the broader framework we are functioning in and we're part of, which is nature. Uh, In line with the multiple reports that are mentioned in the uh, in this chapter as well were at different points in time this was considered and some of the statements by either scientists or organizations, international organizations, would always suggest that an immediate action uh, towards environmental issues is required and should be taken without serious action. In light of the recent COP 26th meeting as well, I think we've, we've heard a very similar narrative. So I think we, you touched already on this during the interview, but how optimistic are you that we could be moving in a better direction in terms of our posi- positionality and the environment at large?
0: Well, personally, I'm not optimistic at all because I frankly don't see uh, our great capitalist enterprises or our socialist with Chinese characteristics enterprises in China, um, making, any, making any significant steps in that direction. And uh, we could blame shareholder capitalism or we can blame consumerism, but the uh, all of them intertwined uh, in my not very optimistic view, are a significant barrier to getting us beyond growth. And on the other hand, since everybody likes to end on an optimistic note, I read somewhere together, somewhere today, I um, mean, oh yes, it was Vaz, I think, the international uh, ginger group, and they say, that science tells us that when 3.6 percent of the population actually wants something to happen, it will happen. So maybe we're getting there.
1: <laughs> well, that's certainly a like, optimistic note to end to end on. But before we end, we end the we wrap up the interview completely. I'd like to know what are your current projects, what are you working on, and oh. what should we expect. Hopefully, a new book or? Okay, well, um,
0: Arnold, I think, is busy working away as optimistically as he can at, on issues of climate change um, and has no new books planned. Um, together with three colleagues, I co authored, literally, we wrote together every paragraph we wrote together. A book that has just gone into Yale University Press and that we hope will be out next fall, called Moving Crops and the Scales of History. And it's a long global history which takes crops as an example to look at issues of scale, of movement, of time, of space, um, which we think we hope readers will find diverting and enthralling as well as instructive because we've got all kinds of lovely crops in it like uh, cocoa and dates and tulips and marigolds and lots of lovely things which you might not expect in a serious book about crops. And then the other big project I have on at the moment is together with a group, we're an editorial group of five people including an African archaeologist co-editing the Cambridge History of Technology, which will be in three volumes and is coming along very nicely, and which is aimed to tell completely different histories of technology from the ones you usually find
1: in the big books. Uh, Dr. Bragg, thank you so much for being with us today. We've touched on a subset of the many many topics um, in the book and i'm very glad you were with us today to talk about it
0: uh, well thank you very much for a most interesting interview which taught me things i didn't know i knew and uh and i hope that some of the listeners will find time to look at the book which is actually beautifully illustrated and quite concise And I think an enjoyable read.
1: Thank you again. And to our listeners, until next time.